think about the way the world is and the way that the world could be. All of our systems are interrelated and interdependent. There's a thousand different voices that nobody hears. We're looking at a human being, and there's a life story. 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 Connection to the people we don't know that live near us. An Elevated Denver starts now. Welcome to the Elevated Denver podcast. Earlier this week, we hosted a live podcast at Denver Startup Week, which featured social entrepreneur Jasmine Crow Houston, founder and CEO of Gooder Grocery, and Colorado State Senator James Coleman. These two share values of equity, justice, and dignity. The conversation was inspiring and is worth a listen. As you know, the Elevated Denver podcast enables listeners to delve into why homelessness is such a challenging issue. It is often linked to food insecurity, an inadequate social safety net, and a lack of a sustained commitment to make systemic change in our communities. Our two guests talk about how these issues inform and motivate them. Enjoy listening to this live recorded interview. Just tell us a little bit about why you're passionate about food security and food justice. And if you could um, reflect on why that's particularly linked to housing security. Well, John, thank you and your team at Elevate for having us. Uh, We appreciate this. And also shout out to Brittany Moore Saunders at Amazon for all the great work of putting this together. So in short, uh, I am super proud of what Jasmine's been able to do because the reason why it's important for me and it is for her as well, when I was a kid, I remember going to the grocery store with my mom and it was time for dinner. We got two cans of soup for dinner from the dollar store, and I didn't know the difference. I thought that was, that was a regular grocery store. And when we got home, one can of soup was expired. So my mother went to bed without eating that night, and she made it possible for me to be able to eat dinner. And in a community in which we lived at the time, there weren't very many good options. Um, You know, we talk about food deserts, but we talk about food marshes as well. So you got every fast food restaurant, but no good grocery stores with good produce. And so, again, that's why that matters to me from my personal experience. Um, But I'm just so, we're so blessed and so grateful to have you here, Jasmine, because you've seen this firsthand with so many people in your community. Because of you, so many more people have the ability to have a healthy meal, have the ability to have clothing. And so, uh, can we just give it up for Jasmine really quickly one time, y'all? Snaps, claps, whatever, because it's really powerful for what she's doing. So that's, that's why this really matters for me and the folks I represent. Thank you. And I think that you did such a good lead-in for Jasmine. I'm going to let you take the reins and start the interview with her, and I might circle back with a couple questions at the end of that, if that's all right. Awesome. That's great, Jonna. Thank you. So, so Jasmine, my first question is, is, you know, we heard a little bit about Gooder, but tell us more about the inspiration behind it. Why did you create this amazing opportunity? You know, and it's, it kind of mirrors your story, but it goes to a personal friendship story. Now, I started feeding people that were experiencing homelessness in downtown Atlanta in 2013 and was doing that, you know, every single week for about four years before I ever would start Gooder. And the day that I like to say changed my life and it was kind of the day that I saw the light. And when I say saw the light, if you ever go into your kitchen at night, like for me, 
for cheese. Cause I'm like a cheese, so I'm like a little mouse, and like late at night I'll just sw- um, swing down there for like cheese and like simply lemonade. Those are like my little vices. But you could walk into your kitchen, and you know we always have our little stove light on. But when you open your refrigerator, you see everything, and it's like this bright light. And so I was sitting in my friend's uh, kitchen. And this was back in 2016. We're having this really lively conversation. We were ironically just being very grateful that social media didn't exist when we were in college because our outfits were so terrible and there was no pictures or no proof. So we're having this really fun conversation and she offers me a glass of water. And when she opens her refrigerator door, I could immediately see from the front to the back. And it was just kind of like, you know, this is way before Zoom and everything. So I don't know what my face looked like at the time, but she turns around She's pregnant with her second child, and she burst into tears. And she was like, I know what you're thinking, Jasmine. I'm always trying to keep snacks and goldfish and apple juice and stuff in the house for Max, who was her two-year-old son at the time. But she was like, we're struggling. And, you know, they had just purchased their first home, which anyone who's ever purchased a home knows how much that is. They were kind of after the American dream. They were living in New York City. She was working on Good Morning America. She had toured with Zendaya and Paula Abdul and the Backstreet Boys because she's a makeup artist. And she wanted to have a backyard for her kids to play in. So they saved up all their money. They come, they buy this house in in Atlanta. And she thinks it's the second Hollywood. For sure, I'll get film and TV roles. It'll pick back up. But her husband gets a job at State Farm. And they put this money down on this house. And when she gets to Atlanta, it's not as easy to kind of pick back up. And so they go from uh, probably a middle-class, two-income household to a one-income household. And they have to make this critical decision, which so many people make every single month. And that is, am I going to pay for my rent, my power bill, gas, or food? And what we know and studies have shown is that food is the first to go. And so that was a really pivotal moment for me because all this time I was feeding people that were experiencing homelessness, feeling like, I'm really putting a dent in hunger. And in a way, I was, right? Because people would come to my feedings and they would wait. I mean, I had people say like, hey, I had to sell my food stamps to feed the, to pay our rent. And they would put their kids on our, our bus system just to come down to the parks where I was feeding at just to eat. But seeing my friend that was college educated, that was married, that had led a successful career, not have food in her house, it just shifted my perspective. And I was like, why does she, why is this a problem? Like, why doesn't she have food? Like, because in your mind, you're, you would understand that people that are experiencing homelessness or they're unhoused, maybe, yeah, they don't have a refrigerator. They don't have a place to live. You could come and check a lot of boxes on like why they may not have food. Your friend who checks all these other boxes, right, and doesn't fit the, the traditional picture, her not having food was unique to me. And so I started volunteering at food banks. We took her to a food bank, you know, and I just realized that we were solving hungry, hunger really wrong in this country. It was like, take this box of food, go home and, and be happy, negating the fact that, you know, they could have dietary restrictions, that there were things that they don't eat. So the dignity piece was just not being addressed. And that is ultimately what got me into doing this, plus learning how much food goes to waste. And it just seemed like a a perfect opportunity at the time. You know, we all talk about being one paycheck away, and there's probably people in our lives that we know, and we, didn't, we don't know that until it hits them, and so you've created something for everybody uh, where they can have an option. So you, you touched on a couple of principles, but as you think about the business model, how it operates, how it works, for those who don't know, 
Talk about the business model of Gooder and how it works. So we have a two-sided business model. One side is around food waste. And we see ourselves largely as a waste management company. And when I really started researching food waste, I was blown away that 72 billion pounds of food goes to waste every year in this country. And that's just from businesses. So if you add to what goes to waste in our households, we're talking about 120 billion pounds. So on average, they say every household is wasting about 300 pounds of food a year, which we've seen it. You know, your produce goes bad. You, you've ever gone to the grocery store and then order DoorDash or something. You know, you, you do that. And so one of the kind of glaring things was like, well, who's getting paid to throw this food away? And it was the waste companies. And waste is a huge industry. It's never going away. Like, you're probably not going to say tomorrow, like, let's just keep our trash at the house, right? And if that was a problem in your district, no trash collections are happening. People are upset. There's rodents. There's everything else. So I started thinking, like, we should be a waste company instead of taking this food to landfill. We'll divert it from landfill. If the food is edible, we'll get it to our nonprofits um, who will then get it to people in need. If it's non-edible, we can compost it. We could get it to animal feed. So that's kind of our business model there is kind of a volume-based fee-for-service based off of how often we are picking up and how much food we're recovering. And then on our hunger business model, we really kind of have a cost plus model, really where we just have um, a small administration fee, which we charge is about 15%, which allows us to administer our business and keep people employed. And then the cost is the cost for goods. So what it costs us to procure the food and deliver it. So it's a cost plus model. Okay, great. And, you know, it's interesting. I remember in, I remember in college, we would, you know, stack up our plates at the cafeteria and then folks would just not finish all their food. And you could tell from looking at me, I finished all my food. But there are people who would not finish all their food. And we would always ask, where does all this go? And there's so many people that are hungry. So I think it's powerful that you have this model. Talk and and about... there's a lot of waste at college campuses, too. Oh, yeah. So if you just think that's one college, right? Thousands of colleges all across the country have the same issue every day. They prepare all this food because they have to prepare to meal plans. You know, there's 100,000 students on the campus. Let's take University of Alabama and Tuscaloosa, where my husband went. Um, 100,000 students, let's say 80,000 have a meal plan. They have enough food on that campus at any time to feed 80,000 students. But what happens in college is you order pizza. Right. So a lot of times you don't always go and eat in the cafeteria and you don't always take advantage of your meal plans. So there's a lot of food that goes to waste. And this, this goes to the question. The question is twofold. One is, how do you measure impact for Gooder? But also when you think about revenue, you think about your model and what it costs uh, and, and, and sometimes what you charge, but what it costs are two different things. So ultimately, what's the impact? But also, what does it cost you to do business so that folks know how we can support you? You know, I'll say it's really been hard to have this kind of a business model because, you know, we're not like a, a Facebook or an Amazon. We're not like a really big kind of startup, right? And so a lot of times when you think an Amazon and Facebook or, or Meta now or whatever you want to call them, they're past the startup phases. But at one point they were, you know, these were founders that were sitting in their garages and had these ideas to create these companies that would go on to be billion dollar organizations and have hundreds of thousands of employees. And a lot of times when I took that model, like, hey, we're not going to be a nonprofit. We have a strong business case here, but we're going to be tied to impact. That a lot of times didn't ring well with investors. And still till this day, it doesn't, right? Because the reality is investors care about making money. I care about making impact. And, and a lot of times our, our visions are not aligned. Um, 
And that's okay because, you know, I always have said no matter what, like if Gooder goes on to be wildly successful, we've already done a lot and we've already, you know, seen a lot of success. So I think, you know, I put impact first and I tell my team, you know, people over profits. And I believe by doing that, good will come. You know, I think it isn't always true. <laughs> like there are definitely some times where, you know, we have, we make sacrifices because we, we never want to make sacrifices at the expense of people. And so what I always tell people is, we're never going to give someone less food or, or give someone a, a better a food that's about to expire or a less of it an experience when working with us because people matter. And I think, you know, it's not, I haven't proved this, but I still think it'll come back to us by, by leading with that philosophy. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I shared with the group before we had this podcast that uh, my father was a street preacher. And so I grew up doing a lot of ministry with him in the community. And we used to go to food banks. And when we would get food, sometimes it would not be the best quality. Oh, yeah. And so you're talking about figuring out a way. And we talk about impact versus money. You're talking about real good quality, good food for people, just like we would want to have on our tables when we eat dinner at, at night, um, which is really I did powerful. a whole TED Talk on this exact thing. And, I, and even though this was years ago, seven years ago, working in a food bank, I still recall the foods that we were giving people. And I, the only thing that kept going through my mind as we were making all of the food is like, what are these people going to eat? And, and that's why I say that there is a big difference between access to food in this country and access to meals. You know, like I could give you some canned goods and some potato chips and some ding-dongs and, you know, some pasta. But if I don't give you pasta sauce or kind of like if I give you peanut butter but no jelly and no bread or spaghetti with no spaghetti sauce, then it's kind of like, what do you do here? And so people sometimes do have to put together these struggle meals or they do have family members that go without. But they shouldn't have to exist in a country that's as rich as this one where there's so much food that goes to waste and there's a lot of opportunity. I mean, we still haven't captured all the food. We've diverted about 12 million pounds, you know, since we've started, which is something we celebrate, but think of 72 billion a year. So we, I mean, I feel like we've even got to get to a billion pounds of diversion a year to really start making a dent in, in this massive waste. Anybody ever had a peanut butter sandwich, no jelly? That's tough. Oh, yes. So, you know, I mean, I, had I, mean, butter. Had I just them. have had butter sandwiches. Come on, it's sugar really like, sandwich. Yes. Oh, that was the thing. Why are you so And it tastes good back in the I mean, And I would put some cinnamon on mine and just to make it like you know a it's whole good. thing. It's cinnamon you toast, know? like, is what I used to it's call cinnamon it. Cinnamon toast. Not the no crunch. Punch. No, yeah. I never had the crunch, but I definitely had cinnamon toast. And so, and, you know, my dad was in the military. And that's what's so that's crazy right. to me, just thinking about my dad served this country for years. And I grew up food insecure. And that's, I mean, like, really crazy to think about. Like, and that's, that's probably a story still to this day. And that's a, that's a question I want to ask you. There's misconceptions, I think, about waste and food security. And you touched on, it touches everyone, whether you serve the country in the military, whether you just lost your job, whether Senior you're unhoused. Citizens, right. I mean, we get emails from seniors um, probably five, six times a week, lots of seniors. And it, it hurts because a lot of seniors are getting, I would say between 11 and $16 a month in food stamps. And that's, I mean, I don't even care if you're in Safeway, definitely you can't go to Whole Foods, right? Like I know that's, that's Colorado yeah. staple, but you're not buying nothing at Whole Foods for $16. But seniors, you know, they work their whole lives. 
And then they get to this point where they retire and because their food stamp benefits, it's all based on their income. And so they're only, because they are getting some income because they're you know probably paying 30% of their rent like subsidized housing if they don't own their homes, they're capped at what they could get in food stamps. And I mean, we get emails that are like, our, my cupboards are empty. I haven't had food this week. And it's, you know, they're, they're looking for pet food. They're feeding themselves and feeding their pet who's their best friend. Um, so seniors is another population that I think a lot of people forget about. And of course, children. You know, today, just being at Place Bridges Academy and learning that they have a wait list of students that are just trying to even get into our grocery stores to get food is heartbreaking. So this leads into another question I had, because you touched on making the choice between eating, so food security, and things like housing. How do you feel like food security intersects with housing and even the unhoused folks who are homeless? How does that, how does that intersect? Well, the cost is going up. And so when, when I talk about that critical choice, it's even, it's more critical now, right? Because rents are skyrocketing all across the country. I was, when I was driving today, I was in, uh, I think, Cherry Creek. And so drove past this street and, and my Uber driver was like, oh yeah, they're, these places are, you know, a couple million dollars. And I was like, and they were houses. I mean, these weren't mansions. Like they were like houses. They looked new, very gentrified, you know, nice houses. But to think that they're millions of dollars. So what that says is even somebody who's working a, a regular job, their family, it's going to be hard to afford a million-dollar home with a 7 to 9% interest rate. And so when you talk about the, the intersection of housing and hunger, I don't think we've quite felt it to where we will feel it eventually because these interest rates, this is high. And this is, and then to your point, that being one paycheck away, so if one person in that family loses their job and they're trying to pay a million dollar mortgage with a 7% interest rate, what kind of choices do you think they're making then? And so, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. Even people that are on house, it's kind of like, how do you, I remember when I used to work and I worked at Metro Atlanta Task Force for the Homeless um, for about two years, and that's also how I started feeding. It would be, I mean, we'd be working with people that were working, but their biggest thing was like being able to save up first and last month's rent. Some of them having to be able to put money down because their credit wasn't good to even get their electricity on. So they're in this vicious cycle that even if they're trying, it's going to be really, really hard without help for them to become unhoused because it's hard to save up first and last month's rent. Yeah. You know, I was going to ask you specifically about COVID because COVID rocked the, the world. Um, but in particular, there's certain communities that I think we're experiencing some of these disparities that you've been talking about. And that only exacerbated food security issues for those communities. Have you seen that as you go around the country that certain communities have just been more impacted and were impacted prior to, but because of those issues, it's exacerbated food security? 100%. So prior to COVID, we saw about 40 million people that were food insecure. At the height of COVID, we were around 56 million. And I remember serving in, I mean, we had nurses, flight attendants. And when I say nurses, people were like nurses, but they were, um, maybe they were a nurse to like a plastic surgeon. And then, you know, all of those surgeries were canceled. So they, they just weren't working. And so these are people who had really good jobs, of course, teachers and everybody that just was out of work. And it was really tough. And, and what happened and why it's more exasperated now is there was, there were pockets of government relief that people did get, you know, um, parents that had kids, they got like P cards. So at some point they, they were able to get additional money 
for their kids to be able to purchase groceries. Um, there were, of course, stimulus checks. There were, there were just all these different kinds of services. And then all of that ended. And so what ended up happening is people, that need was actually the need that needed to be met, period, in people's lives. And then it, all it was all taken away. And so last week, um, a New York Times article came out, and I, I tweeted this, and it stated that um, there's a 12% rise in childhood poverty between 2021 and 2022. So that's a lot more kids that are living in poverty now. Because, you know, $300 a month to put towards groceries or just living expenses for your kids, a lot of times it may not seem like a lot to the working individual that goes and spends $300 at Del Frisco's for dinner. But for a mom that's living on the marginal poverty line, $300 a month for your kid is, is you know, for Kansas soup, right? And she gets to eat and you get to eat. It's, it's, it changes their, their situation. I will say, you know, of course, people of color, um, are, have always experienced hunger um, at higher rates. And so it's, it's definitely gotten worse um, consistently. And I would say specifically um, black communities, Hispanic communities were seeing it at, at higher rates. Yeah, and that's the question I was going to ask too. So Colorado is 4% African-American. I'm not sure where it is, where you live. What's the percentage of African-Americans in the state? Would you know? Well, in the city, it's about 60%. 60%. So <laughs> that's a big difference. Yeah. But you know what's, what's crazy? I, I used to live in Arizona before I moved to Georgia, and it was about 3%. Um, so very similar to Colorado. But even still, it would be about 3% of the population would be black, but maybe 30% of the homeless population would be black. Or so, you, you know, you see that. So that's, that's the exasperation that you talk about. Like a very small percent of population, but a very high percentage of the poverty population. So, and I, and, you know, walking through downtown today, I got a little lost. I could tell you that I saw a lot of people that were homelessness, that are experiencing homelessness right around here that were black. And you just said that this is a state that has 4% African-American. And so it's, it's almost proof point to, to what I'm saying. I, I mean, I was, I can't even remember what street I was coming up, but everybody I saw homeless, I saw tents, I just saw a whole row of streets, and I, I literally, every single person I saw was African-American. That was an hour ago. Yeah, well, we're going to change that with your help. We appreciate what you're doing here, not only in Colorado, but across the country. Thank you. Um, and that goes to the larger impact. So my, I guess the question for me is, what is your impact goal for Gooder? What do you want to see ultimately accomplished that you want to head towards? I mean, my biggest goal, you know, my legacy goal is that I could end hunger. You know, that's really why I wrote a children's book, because I would hope that if I don't do it in my lifetime, I can inspire this next generation to do it. My, my goal really is to reduce food waste by 15% and hunger by 10%. And a lot of times people say, oh, those are such small numbers, but they're really impactful. If we reduce food waste by 15%, that would be enough to feed about 25 million hungry Americans. That's a lot of food. If I could just reduce it by 15% and then by cutting hunger by 10%, that's a big difference. You know, that's literally one out of, I think right now the numbers are saying about one out of seven to eight people are hungry. So taking that down and that's one less person that's hungry, you know, so I, I really do think that we can achieve it. it. It does take a lot more, you know, public, I guess, partnerships and government partnerships and also a belief that hunger can be solved in ways other than just the food banks. And that's a tough conversation for people to hear sometimes because 
Every company is tied to the food bank. Every big or I mean, if you name me any company in Denver that's one of your, you know, top companies, somebody from that company sits on the food banks. And, and they should, right? But in, until we change and, and start to think like there's other ways to solve hunger, there's unique ways that maybe we build a free grocery store. Maybe we do grocery delivery for seniors. Maybe we do, you know, we have a mobile grocery store in Georgia, and I think we're going to have one in Virginia as well, that we just drive around to rural communities and bring a grocery store on wheels until more people are open to that. You know, my job isn't so hard, and I don't hear no a thousand times a day, um, it's important, you know, I, I often say our, our operating budget at Gooder is about three to four million dollars a year. The operating budget of the food bank in our city is about 140 million a year. And we are operating and doing work all over the country. So if we could switch that and just get even 10% of that in every city that we work in, it would really go very far to, to create some change. Jasmine for president, I'm, I'm calling her right now. I don't know when she's gonna run. But I just think she's saying no. But listen, I apologize. We're going to launch your campaign. We're going to get the website started. We're going to get out here and knock these doors. How many of y'all believe we could end hunger? Absolutely. And I believe you're leading that. And you're going to lead that and continue to lead that. So we're super proud of you for what you're doing. You know, one of the things that um, we think about, as you said, this quality versus just providing a meal for somebody uh, or food for somebody. Why is having a choice in what you eat important? Why does that matter? We're at Place Bridges today. Um, Fatima, who's the community hub manager at that school, said to me that one of the shoppers, so one of the parents at the school said, like, this, we really get to pick out things. And she said, because in the past, they just give you a box and, you know, you go home and I feel bad because a lot of the things in that box I don't eat. It matters because at that school, it's a heavy uh, refugee and immigrant population. And when we first started, they asked and requested hala meat, uh, kosher items. You know, you being hungry does not negate the fact that you have religious convictions, that you maybe are vegan, that you maybe are lactose intolerant, all the different things that you experience. And a lot of times that is taken out of the equation when I just give you a box of something and say, go with it. Even when we do our pop-up grocery stores where people drive through and get food, and we've done these for years now, one of the very first things our greeters ask is, do you have any food allergies? Would you like almond milk today? Dairy milk? Are you vegan? Do you have a vegan in the household? And we always try and make sure that people get what they need. It's very critical because, I mean, people literally can eat things that could kill them. So to just give them, you're giving someone nuts. And, you know, they take nuts into their house and they have a nut allergy, shellfish. I mean, it's so important, and yet it's never been a thought because the reality is a lot of people just think you're hungry, be grateful. And, and we have to change that situation. We have to change that stigma and way of thinking. Yeah, yeah. So when your mama tell you, be hungry, you're hungry, be grateful, and eat what I put on your plate, your mama know what you're allergic to. Yeah, she knows. What you can and cannot <laughs> you eat. You don't know. Yeah. yeah, that's different from person to person. And so, so you talked earlier about this surplus food management kind of platform. Talk to us more about that. And as you've been able to scale that across the country into your different uh, stores, talk to us about that surplus food management platform. Yeah. We actually have some customers here in Denver as well. I believe we have the Rocky Stadium. Um, and there's a couple of others for sure. I feel like I'm forgetting. But essentially what we do is we inventory everything it is the business sells. It's a very easy user experience. So almost like just clicking on and ordering 
like what you would if you're using Uber Eats, DoorDash, Amazon Fresh. You click on the items, you tell us how many you have, and then you request a pickup, and then we send a driver to pick it up, and then we deliver it to a nearby nonprofit. So this a lot of times could be shelters. Um, we have a network of safe houses that we work with for sex trafficking and domestic violence victims. Um, we work with a lot of schools, churches, and then we get that food delivered, and now it's donated so it doesn't go to waste. And someone who's food insecure gets it for free. Yeah. And I love that you talked about the partnerships like you have with Amazon. So, you know, we have two stores here you mentioned. Talk to us about the impact in particular of the stores that you have here in Colorado. Oh, yeah. They're just today. I mean, it was, it was, I'm so happy I got a chance to visit today. But um, they're doing about 5,000 meals every single month in each one of the stores. Uh, they have about 200 visitors coming a month, um, and they are picking out things. And it's the impact is so great because we talk to those store champions, is what we call them, and they tell us like, "Hey, Jasmine, we're getting requests for this, or we've got a lot of babies. You know, parents are coming in with babies." We we learned today that there are sometimes things that they don't know what it is. You know, they were showing me today that a lot of times when they have a huge uh, population from Venezuela that's here now at Place Bridges, and she said they were they were unfamiliar with like salad dressing. They didn't know what it was or things are called different names. And so now we're like, oh, okay, so we got to do translations and like we're going to get some labels to kind of show everybody what it is. We're going to do recipe cards. And so we were just so excited in the two hours I was over there with them this morning thinking through all the ideas and ways that we can and let people know because it's interesting the things that are not popular in this store are extremely popular in our Atlanta stores like taco kits and things like that she was like oh no you know they want rice beans fish like that in spinach and vegetables and I was like okay like this is really interesting so now we're learning like okay she said that some people were unfamiliar with like making things in a box, like shelf-stable items. And that's so unique for me to hear. So because we have that relationship and it's two-way, now we'll start to change. And so even before I came over here, I went to the grocery store and got more things just because I wanted them to have them and, you know, took them back and they unloaded the truck and they're like, thank you, Jasmine. So it's, it's good because I was listening and now we'll, we'll get to it. So the impact has been amazing. And I mean, they will reach a year. Um, they open in late October. So they'll reach a year next month, which is crazy and exciting to think about. And these were our first ever outside of Georgia in Denver. Yeah. We're honored, we're honored to have you. So the question is not uh, how do we get started? We already have two. The question is how do we get more? So we know that this is, it takes funding. It takes support and resources. So you know, as you're thinking about scaling here in Denver and in Colorado, scaling across the country, what does it take in order to have more stores for more people to have food support? Yeah, it really just takes support. I think that's pretty much it. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a picture of this banner for Startup Denver and reach out to all these companies. You know, like, just that's what it's all about. Like, you know, we have Amazon, but we should have every single person on that list um, should be making sure that our neighbors have access to food. I think it's I always talk about this Snickers commercial. It premiered Super Bowl maybe like 12 years ago, but it um, starred Betty White, rest in peace, and Danny DeVito in it. And it talked about you're not yourself when you're hungry. And, you know, they would switch and become each other. And I think that that is so true. And I always, I think about people that have just never really experienced who they are and their full selves because they're hungry. And especially children, you know, you, you measure children's grades in third and fifth and eighth grade and and you start to determine how successful this child will be 
um, in 27 states in this country, I don't know if Colorado is one of them, they determine the number of prisons and prison beds they'll need based off of a kid's fifth grade and eighth grade reading and math scores, never understanding that this child doesn't eat when they go home. They only get free breakfast and lunch at school. And so if we don't change that and we continue to create this prison, school to prison pipeline for students without making sure that they have food all the way around, like the whole child and the whole experience, it's so important. Um, and you know, the reality is a lot of money goes to sponsor a lot of things. You know, I, we were joking about Coach Prime, you know, I was laughing because his sunglasses sold like $1.2 million in a day. And I was thinking to myself, wow, I could, I could feed a lot of children with $1.2 million, you know, if we could, if we could access that kind of funding. Um, so the money is there. It's sometimes the support that is not. All you got to do is get somebody to talk about your mama, and yeah. then you have glasses and hats. Um, I'm going to reach out to Coach Prime and have him, like, I feel like <laughs> he should, every touchdown or something, support good, or I'm going to figure it out. It's there we gonna, go. It'll happen. I like that. And I got to tell you, I don't know about y'all here and those who are listening, but have you ever been hangry, or as we call it, <laughs> hungry? Because you could be hungry, but, I mean, we don't take into account the privilege it is just to have one meal a day let alone three meals a day, if, if that. Snacks in the house, I mean. Oh, yeah, and how it impacts I have a two-year-old now who's asking oh, for yeah. snacks all the time. I God can't bless. even imagine until she's eight. I mean, she asks for snacks every other minute. And just imagine if you have more than one kid. Or, so. or if you have to say no. Yeah. I don't have anything for you when your and kids are begging you for those snacks. And that's that's my, a reality of a lot of folks. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And it happens mama. to a lot of families. Yeah, my mom used to tell me, we don't have money for that. And after a while, I started learning, oh, for that. You got money, but she was like, yeah, to pay these bills. But there's certain things that you want to have, we just can't have right now. So you've done something amazing. You've created both a socially and environmentally driven business. It could not have been easy. What were some of the challenges and difficulties you faced as you created Gooder? I mean, yeah, it's, it's not easy. You know, I think... Um the perception switch was really hard because a lot of people, I remember when my TED talk first went viral in 2019, and it was so crazy because I gave that TED talk in December of 2019. And, you know, four months later, we were in this pandemic. So it was very, it was very pivotal at the time. And I remember people were like, oh, you know, you're talking down about food banks. And I literally said in my speech, you know, food banks and food pantries serve a vital purpose, but they're not working, you know, and this is what we're getting wrong in the fight against hunger. So I think the perception has been really hard. Um, the funding, of course, has been really hard. It's, it's, it's hard for women to raise capital. You know, we're here at Startup Week. We, I have to say, as, as women, you get 2% of all venture capital funding. Women of color getting less than that. Black women are getting about 0.4%. And, you know, the time of George Floyd and people making a lot of pledges around diversity, that has waned. And a lot of that's not there anymore. So there are challenges that exist um, to, to be able to do this. So that's been challenging. I think those have been the challenging parts, like the vision and the strategy and the, the ideation and the technology. I think we've done really well with that. Um, but the funding and the support has been the biggest challenge. And sometimes teams, like, you know, you hire more people and then you have a lot of disagreements because you get a lot of people that are very different. And so, like, those internal conflicts are always interesting to, to navigate as a leader. What would you say particularly to women and women of color who are aspiring to be entrepreneurs 
to have the level of success you've had has been challenging. But what would you say to encourage them? Well, especially if you want to do anything in the social impact space, I would encourage you to get started. Because as I always say, you know, my dad used to joke with me. He's a military guy when I was first starting Gooder. And the first two and a half years, it was really hard. And he would send me jobs every single day. Like if I Google his name, I probably Indeed is the number one thing he was sending me was jobs. And it's not that he didn't believe, but he was, he was definitely like, you should get a job, Chubby, which is my nickname. He was like, you're going to have to go to work. You're going to have to work. And I kept believing, you know, that that this could work, that it just takes one yes. And that's what I would say to encourage you, you know, because you really do have to encourage yourself. And my dad, I mean, that my parents loved me, right? But they couldn't, they weren't entrepreneurs. And so my dad being in the Air Force, my mom being in corporate, they were not the most supportive parents on that entrepreneurship journey because they didn't want to see me struggle. And so I will tell you to encourage yourself, you know, do... Be your own encourager, whether that's journaling, just telling yourself in the mirror. I mean, I used to have post-its everywhere, like, you will be successful. Your app will make it. Like, I used to have to tell myself these things, um, and that's what you've got to do, because there will be times when you will be your only cheerleader, and, and you've got to be that. You can't be your only enemy. So it's really important. That is so powerful. It's interesting, because I think as a generation that comes before us, it's like, get a job. You know, just do the work. And it's not, I love how you said this, right? They were concerned about you. Yeah, they were concerned. Yeah, I always took it like, man, why are you hating? I'm trying to do something great. I took it that way too. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the middle, in the time, in, the, in that midst of it, I was like, God, they just are like hating on me. In hindsight, I'm like, they were now having my own kid. You know, yeah, they were really like, how are you going to eat? You know, you're creating this whole concept. You're trying to feed people. How are you going to feed yourself? So they were concerned. Um, and then they also weren't entrepreneurs, and they were very unaware. And that's, that's just the reality of it. My dad had been in the military, I think, 20 years since he was 21. So a very long time. When you talk about generational impact and generational wealth and some of the things in particular the African-American community historically has not had, what do you look forward the most in teaching your daughter? Yeah, it's so funny. All my friends always say, like, you know, your daughter, everyone's going to come to your house to eat. Like, they always say that. They're going to be like, she's going to be like, you, you need food? Come to Jack. Come to my house. Come, mommy. You got to feed these people. Like, because I do, you know, since she was in a stroller, she was out with me feeding people, you know, now she's making produce bags. So I do hope that she um, understands, you know, I guess I wouldn't say privilege, but the opportunities that she's going to be afforded. Um, and I had, I had my daughter later in life, you know, at, at 36, which was kind of old. I mean, not only were my parents telling me to get a job, they're like, get a husband, have a kid. Like, what are you doing? Like, I was just, I was kind of in many ways to them, like, I wouldn't say a failure, but kind of a late bloomer. They were like, she's never going to get married. She's never, I'm never going to have grandkids. She's never going to get a job. Like, they just didn't know what I was going to do. And, you know, it, it came later. But I think about just, you know, wanting her to have care for her neighbor is, is the thing that I would, I want to instill in her. Because I think if she has that and she has compassion and empathy and, she, and that can lean and rub off on other people. That's what the world really needs. And so I would love for her to have wealth and other opportunities. But if she can have compassion and care about the next person, I think that, that'll take us further. Yeah, thank you for being a great mother. You know, if, a child, if every child had a mom like you, they would know what it meant to be able to pay it forward and make that difference. I never forget one time my son it was cleaning out his backpack. 
and he had a bunch of snacks in there. And I was like, dude, this is crazy. Why do you have all these snacks in here? And he was actually taking snacks to school for friends who did not have food because we had done some stuff with Pooh Bank and Rockies and packing boxes. So part of me was like, man, look, dude, I'm tr- this, at least let me know. You know, money for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pay money for that. But he was trying to do a good thing. And I so that. I think it's really what you said is really critical that as we look at how we treat the people we walk by on the street, our children are watching that. Yeah. And they can see right through it. It's transparency. So the and fact that you're My mom said I did that, that all the time. She was like, you would give away your toys. You would give away your clothes. You would, and I, I mean, of course, I don't remember this because this is when I was little. But she talks about that. Like, you would just give away the house if, you know, you had the deed. Like, she would say that to me. Because I, I always, even as a child, wanted more for others. So. I had one, one final question. What, what else would be, you say... Uh, for the podcast, for the listeners, for those who are here, something that you want to share regarding Gooder or just about yourself and your life um, that we would want to know? Well, I would say, you know, with Gooder, the number of meals that we're providing goes up every single day. So it's, always, it's so interesting to have a bio when you're constantly ticking. I mean, today we've probably provided... 10,000 meals easily across the country, if not more than that. So the number is always rising. Um, We are a small but mighty team that really cares. Um, And at least I could say 100% is led by somebody that really cares. And I really do want to make a difference in, in people's lives as it relates to food. And I believe that everybody deserves to eat. And I think that it is You know, it's a travesty that nationwide tonight, so many people are going to go to bed hungry and they're going to wake up tomorrow still not knowing when and where their next meal is coming from. Yet we're going to throw away, you know, a million rotisserie chickens at grocery stores across the country. And so it's it's this is a problem that I think everybody needs to be thinking about. How do you solve it? And whether it's, you know, you think of ways to lean in and support gooder or you try and figure out ways that you can support a local organization in your community, it's really important because, like I said, people just aren't themselves when they're hungry. Um, how, do we, how do we find out where to support you? Where do we go to learn more information about Gooder? Oh, yes. We are gooder.co. So that's why I love Elevate. We have the same .co. You know, we're, we're elevating, you know, and, and doing um, the .co thing. But we're Gooder Co. also on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and the Gooder Co. on Twitter. Okay, one last, one last time, I have to say this. I am so inspired by you. We are so proud of you. You're making an impact not only in the lives of the folks where you live, but wherever you go, especially for your daughter and generations to come. Let's give it up for Jasmine one more time, y'all. Thank you. Thank you so much. We do have a few more minutes, so I'm not going to let you completely off the hook. I just want to say one thing, which is, I think um, this has been a very inspiring conversation, I hope, for everybody here and everyone who's going to listen. And um, this, I can tell we all have these shared values of equity, justice, and dignity. And I think that's something that you keep coming around to, Jasmine, and I really appreciate that because we really believe that people deserve that um, and that we are actually all one community and we should care about one another just think of, you know, they always say in kindergarten, just treat others how you want to be treated. And, and, you know, if you were ever to be unhoused tomorrow or hungry tomorrow, how would you want to receive? And how would you want to be received? And if you you lead with that, then what we're saying would make all the sense in the world to you. Love that. Yeah, it's that mindset shift we're all working towards. 
Um, before we wrap up, and I have a couple of things to wrap up, Senator Coleman, is there anything you'd like to reflect on, just thinking about your constituency, food security, housing security, and this theme of dignity and equity and justice? Yeah, you know, when, I, when you drove from the airport here, you probably drove by Tower Road, probably drove by Chambers, Peoria, these major intersections that are down the I-70 corridor. Um, and at every single one, we talked about food deserts, but we also talk about food marshes, that you have areas where you don't have good food, but you also have saturated areas where there's literally a McDonald's on every one of those intersections. Probably a dollar store. At a dollar store, yeah. a Taco Bell. Now, I ain't trying to knock any corporations and businesses <laughs> that could then invest into Gooder or something else. But just to say, like, look, you know, you can see that in certain communities that is the reality. And when you go to Cherry Creek or certain other areas that are more affluent, that is just not the case. And so the, the, I think for me, uh, it's not just, you know, seeing that and making a complaint. It's what can we do to incentivize more businesses that provide healthy food. Colorado's top three industry, one of top three, top three industries is agriculture. And so we talk about making sure that we have healthy foods and produce and buy local. I mean, these are all really critical things. And so what do we do to incentivize the farmers in our state as well as we, as we continue to figure out a way to support that? And the last thing for the unhoused, you know, we ran a bill that provided about $50 million to create a site that would allow us to have a place for folks who were unhoused to go, but also have wraparound services. And ultimately what that would do is say, you have a place to live, but you have workforce development, you have mental and physical health supports, there's healthy food here, there's childcare. So it's all those things you say, like we take for granted, and then you know, when we don't have them, then there's a problem. But we don't have that issue as much as people who are really dealing with that. And God forbid, but for God, there go we. I don't mean to preach, uh, I am a preacher. But those are the kinds of things that I think, as you're doing the work, as you're doing the work, we're figuring out a way to look at what we do publicly, and in a private sector to eliminate hunger and homelessness. And my lens is always this. If it was my mama, or if it was somebody I really cared about, or me, I would want to be treated a certain way. So we have to have that level of urgency, and I'm really glad that you're already doing the work, Jasmine. We appreciate you. Thank you. Um. Well, I was going to say also, I really appreciate both of you being here. I think you're both inspirations, doing amazing work, have quite the resume and accolades on, under your belt, and surely more to come, um, which we're looking forward to following. And I also just want to honor, too, Jasmine, I really appreciate that your entire business is based on being responsive to the needs that you're continuing to listen to and understand, and you as well, Senator, and your constituents, and just listening and hearing and being responsive to that, to that, which is what we're trying to uphold as well. How do we elevate those voices so that we can truly understand what community needs and let them tell us and direct the solutions so that it's responsive? I think you're doing it, and I think, again, you know, with your bill, I don't know if that passed, but when you introduce bills like this and you introduce kind of ideas and legislation, it's like that's where everybody that's listening, everyone that's here, that's when your voices matter the most because that's an incredible bill that's needed in every single city. I was just saying today that I've traveled so often over the last few months and I'm seeing homelessness at a level that I've never, I really haven't seen in a long time. I wouldn't say never. Um, you know, my sister lives in LA, so I see homelessness every time I visit her, pretty extreme. But we can't do anything. I can't do anything by myself. And so the elevation comes in the support. 
Yes, and let's not forget to um, think about how we invest as individuals, as companies, as corporations, as a community, because I think the, that we really all need to shift our mindset to this. We need to invest in doing good for our community, and there is no better ROI that comes with that. I would just add to that really quickly. Uh, I was talking to Brittany Joyce. She's my VP of Business Administration here. We were talking about policy and how we create policy and stakeholding. And here's the reality. I've never been unhoused. How am I going to tell somebody how to come out of that? Yep, exactly. So when we're creating policies, we have to bring those folks to the table in order to tell us. And a lot of folks in leadership seem, feel like it's inadequate or it's a slight on who they are because they don't have the answer. It's actually worse to remain ignorant. And the goal is to figure out how we bring people who actually have the information, the knowledge, and the answers, because they, from an organic perspective, can tell us how they got out of that. That's all I want is to know what do we need to do. So we have to bring the people who have been impacted by whatever the issue is into the conversation, even when we're creating policy. They are the experts through their experience, and they do have the answers to the solutions. Okay. Well, thank you both again thank for being you. here. It's been an honor, a pleasure, and I um, can't wait to follow along and see what happens with both of your endeavors. Thanks, Shauna. Thank we appreciate you. Thanks for listening to this special live podcast during Denver Startup Week. If you want to learn more about Jasmine Crow Houston and Gooder Grocery, go to www. Dot gooder dot co. That's www.goodr.co. To learn more about Senator James Coleman representing Senate District 33, go to colemanforcolorado.com. You can follow both on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn as well. The links will be in the show notes. Thanks to Amazon, presenting sponsor of Denver Startup Week and funder of Gooder Grocers in Denver for bringing us all together for this conversation. And if you didn't know this, we learned that you can use SNAP and EBT benefits through Amazon Access to purchase groceries. Thanks for joining us, and look for Episode 11 on evictions, dropping on September 27th. The Elevated Denver Podcast is produced by Leanne Morrison, Myra Nagy, and Jonna Flood. Narration brought to you by me, Nathan Havey. Editing, sound design, and music are composed and provided by Jesse Boynton. Recording and production provided by the Olympic Recording Studio. If you found this episode interesting and would like to learn more about our work, please visit us at elevateddenver.co. And don't forget to let others in the community know about this podcast. It's going to take all of us to build an elevated Denver.